I am Marlon Jones, the Career Skills Architect, and this is View from the Big Chair Podcast, Examining the Cost to Be the Boss. The purpose of this podcast is to share information with students in sports administration programs and with young professionals and those who are underemployed in sports administration. We talk with guests who sit in the big chair, those persons who are directors of athletics, who are head coaches, commissioners, or directors of different areas within athletic administration. We learn from their journey, and we also learn what skill sets they look for when they are hiring for positions so that you know how to prepare so that you can get to your own big chair. Today, our guest on the podcast is Dr. Laquita Frederick. She is the faculty director and associate professor of the practice for the Georgetown University Sports Industry Management Program. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. When and how did you develop your love of sports? I don't really honestly have memory without sports. My dad um, was a high school basketball coach and tennis coach. He also played in the adult recreation leagues. So I have very vivid memories of being on his shoulders in dugouts and coming in the back doors of gyms and smelling the popcorn and the aroma of, of a Friday night game. So Quite honestly, it's it's in my DNA. All right. So walk our listeners through your professional journey. Sure. Um, Well, where do I start? Um, I would honestly say as much as I've always grown up loving sports and um, being from North Carolina, a.k.a. Tobacco Road, as we were speaking before recording, um, I grew up with a love of ACC basketball early on, really all of the ACC, no, no real biases. Um, and then I, of course, I attended NC State University for undergrad. So I don't know that I saw sports as a career, even though it always permeated pretty much every facet of my life until I arrived at NC State. I had a mentor slash professor, um, Dr. Brown, and he taught the multidisciplinary class at NC State that was really for minority students acclimating to the campus. But his main job was in academic support for the athletics department. So he was one of those professors, I think we've all had them, where you just go, not just for advice, but to hang out. <laughs> kind of a, a dad away from mm-hmm. home. And Each time I would visit him, it basically required me to go into Reynolds Coliseum because that's where his offices were. And I guess over time, I just started observing around me that there was a whole world that was college athletics. It was a business. And I was like, people are getting paid to do this. (laughs) So that was really my first discovery. Up until that time, my aspirations were to go get a college degree and go to law school. At that time, I still hadn't ruled out law school. I probably just decided it would be sports and entertainment law. 
But that was really when I honed in on sports, the industry. And he also guided me towards the master's program at Ohio State. He had earned his doctorate there. And so I had an aunt that worked at HBCU and Ohio State has a very, very robust recruitment program for minorities. They don't generally come to the PWIs. <laughs> they go to the HBCUs. But my aunt allowed me to tag along when she took a group of students. And so the combination of him exposing me to that program and, and having a little bit of a cheat opportunity to visit, I started looking at grad school for sports management. So that was my entree into the industry. Um, to condense it a little bit, and then I'm sure I'll be able to address some points in future questions. I did earn my master's in, in um, sports administration and management at Ohio State, the Ohio State University. And then I was torn between college athletics and professional sports. But since I had worked in Ohio State's athletics department as part of my GA role, I decided to go for professional sports, particularly basketball, since that was my first love. So from Ohio State, I went to the Orlando Magic. I thought I would stay in the NBA lane, but I needed to get a little closer to home due to parents becoming sick. So my network started kicking in and I had an opportunity to go from the Magic through a contact at the Bulls who had a contact at the Braves. And I went to work for the Atlanta Braves. And eventually I did return to North Carolina because my dad was getting sicker. And I pivoted back to college athletics, working for NCCU. Um, now I get a chance to return to my alma mater uh, a decade later, NC State. And uh, yeah, that, that's probably the shortest version I can give you. <laughs> okay. Now, how did you create the sponsorship program at North Carolina Central? That's a very, very good question. North Carolina Central was a real um, unique opportunity for me personally, because although I had hung out at HBCUs and a lot of my family members had attended HBCUs, not only had I not attended, but the two universities I attended and the two universities I had been exposed to college sports were Division I Power Five. And any of us that follow um, college athletics, we know that that's a very, very narrow sliver of the pie. Out of 356 Division I schools, only 65 are that. So I was exposed to the, the highest level. So at NCCU, I had to get creative. <laughs> they didn't have the same amount of resources or exposure, same audience. So it's, it's not just a tougher sale, but it's just a, a unique environment to try to get sponsorships when you're surrounded by Duke, you're surrounded by Carolina, you're surrounded by NC State, and not far away is Wake Forest. Because um, the reality is maybe you're not a power five school, but you're still competing for those same sponsors and the same dollars. But my mentor who brought me there, Lynn Dawson, who had been a senior associate AD at State, and he became the AD at North Carolina Central, recruited me there because he wanted to bring that to NCCU to the degree that we could, is to bring some of that mentality and those goals. And so I pounded the pavement. I reached out to all the sponsors that had worked with NCCU in the past. Um, I also used my own personal relationships to get into new doors. And rather than compete against those schools, I think my advantage was I knew the distinctions. And so I would market to them based on what was unique about this HBCU the people that you would reach through North Carolina Central that you would not reach 
through Dukes and Carolinas and NC States. Um, those are more mainstream populations, whereas HBCUs are very niche populations. And so that was my appeal. Um, and then, of course, there's student athletes at the center of all of it. And, and most people are rooting for student athletes to do well. And when you tell them they need resources or they need this or they need that, that definitely bends ears. Oh, definitely. Now, you had an unheard of 100% renewal rate. How did you achieve that? Southern hospitality. <laughs> um it's so interesting that you would ask me that because I actually, and I probably shouldn't be completely transparent, but that's who I am. I'm honest. I'm transparent. I'm authentic. I hate sales. I really, really don't like sales at all. But what I've discovered is that if I reframed it and these were conversations with partners, these are conversations with your network. These are conversations with other people who, who are vested in college athletics or they're invested in strategic marketing and advertising. If I just focused on that, I tend, tended to be able to build a rapport with people that resonated. And I literally closed all my pitches. I didn't always get what I set out to pitch. <laughs> Maybe I asked for a hundred thousand and I got 50 or 75, but I was able to get something. If I couldn't get cash, then I focused on in-kind because in-kind still reduced our budget if we were able to get meals donated. So I think being very, very flexible and creative and just being sincere really worked in my favor. That's great. That is really great. Now, what is the main role of marketing within the collegiate athletic department? Also a good question. The reason I say that's a good question is because it depends on where you are. If I were to simplify it, the main role of marketing is to absolutely market, advertise, and promote that team and to engage your fans. You want fans to enjoy the fan experience. So unlike mainstream marketing, you know, for a corporation, although they too are trying to reach their customer, part of your customer's interests when you're in sports is that they want to have, they want to feel a part of a team. They want to have a positive experience when they come to a game or when they come to a pep rally or when they enter the hospitality tent. So you have to be mindful that it's really a kind of a three-pronged situation with marketing is the fact that you're marketing in a traditional way, but you're also doing promotions and contests and things of that nature. But then you also have this experience piece that's really critical. And then the reason I said it was interesting is because it depends on where you're at. Division one, power five, oftentimes marketing is split into two pieces. You will have an on-site marketing team, which is usually the position I worked in, but you would have an external body. The external body would take care of more of your hardcore sales, like advertising sales, some of your sponsorship, things of that nature. That's really become the trend for division one. And then for your mainstream division one, two, and three, those marketing departments are doing it all. They're going to be doing the marketing, the promoting, and the fan experience, but they're also going to be doing corporate sponsorships and partnerships, corporate hospitality, 
they're going to be more jacks of all trade, trying to capture all of the things that fall under that umbrella of marketing. But if, again, if you're a well-resourced school, you can start to divvy some of that up. All of, the, all of them are trying to accomplish the same thing, but how you do it will depend upon, you know, where you fit into the puzzle. Now, you worked with professional teams, the mm-hmm. Magic, the Braves, Durham Bulls, Columbus crew of the NHL. Yes. How is marketing for the professional team different than marketing for a collegiate team? I think your activities are very similar, but I think your approach is totally different. When you're working with a professional team, it really does come down to butts and seats, and it comes down to ticket sales. Uh, you're still wanting to deliver a solid experience, but at the end of the day, they're trying to make money and they're trying to sell out stadiums. And so you approach it with a more pure pure business model. Um, it doesn't have the nuances of college athletics. College athletics, you, you still want butts and seats, you still wanna sell out, but the reality is it's college sports. Um, and college sports is just a really elevated version of sports from high school or from recreational. You know, You still have a community element, you have an alumni base. So you're always trying to kind of serve multiple masters. Whereas in professional sports, your fans are for sure vested, but at the end of the day, the, the people you're trying to make happy are your league office and your owners. Mm. So it's, it's more of a pure business model. Regarding game operations, what are the responsibilities for the game operations staff on the actual game day itself? Game day. Um, which I love, but you have to be a little bit of a masochist because <laughs> there's a lot of crazy going on on a game day. The game that everybody sees on TV probably has been months, if not weeks in preparation. And it is planned down to the second, literally the second, and lots of moving parts. So with that said, game day in, entails a multitude of functions. It will include people from facilities, It will include people from event management. It will include people from marketing. It would include people from game operations if there's a a distinct game operations staff. And you all are working together to deliver the best possible event and the best possible experience. And again, you're managing multiple priorities. You're managing not just the fan experience, you're managing safety. You are managing timelines. You are managing, if, if you're... Power five, you're managing TV (laughs) because things have to be done on a TV timeline. You're also managing the game itself, making sure that, you know, the game meets certain standards and regulations. The field field is up to preparation um, so that it's safe for athletes to compete on. So game operations are all the tentacles that make the show go. So when I've explained it to a layman's, I usually say when you watch a movie, almost everybody watches movies and you know, or even a TV show, and you know what a director is and you kind of know what a producer is. Well, that's what we are in the world of sports. We are the production crew and we are the directors of the show. Everything that happens outside of regulation falls under game ops. So when that ball is not in place, somebody is running around doing something (laughs) to make sure that it's a good, holistic, flawless experience, or at least perceived to be flawless. (laughs) Lots of moving parts. Lots of moving parts. 
Now, when you planned the events surrounding the MEAC basketball tournament, tell our listeners what some of the skill sets are that you need to have in event management. An event manager really needs to be what I would call born OCD. (laughs) You need to be that person. If you're not into details and you're not into staying on time, that's probably not the lane of sports that you need to be pursuing because event managers have to be timely. They have to be extraordinarily organized and they have to care about the details that nobody else cares about. Um, I prefer to say God is in the details as opposed to the other way that goes, which is the devil's in the details. Um, But at the end of the day, that's what it takes. I honestly have a very vague memory of working on the MEAC stuff because it was so long ago. But what I do remember is with, with most special events is that you're really, again, you're trying to manage multiple priorities. When I was working with the MEAC, I was actually contracted. So I didn't work for the MEAC front office. I worked with, um, oh my goodness, her name escapes me. Jocelyn is her first name. Williams. Thank you. How can I not? I, I can see her face and everything in my memory. It's like, Joc- and I called her Jocelyn. So Williams had slipped. But Jocelyn Williams was the main point person for the MEAC festivities, and I was working for her. And so, again, she assigned us different roles. We had fan events going on, as well as the basketball tournament itself, pet rallies, parade, hospitality events, and generally each of us had roles to play for either all of those things or some of those things and to put our attention there. Um, You've got somebody that needs to be making sure that the signage is done and that it reads right and they have the right logos. Um, You need to make sure that you have support staff. And I don't mean the support staff that's working for the event like I was or like Jocelyn was, but you're going to need those game day people that kick in just for that day, just for those few hours to help you execute the the big picture. So again, I would summarize it saying, you really just need to be someone who cares about the vision, but in a way that you are committed to the timeline, you're committed to the details and you're committed to execution to bring that vision alive. Because the vision looks very sassy. The vision looks saucy, looks sassy, looks glamorous. Um, I don't think anybody watches a game where there's, college or pro and doesn't think that would be cool. That would be fun. It is cool. It is fun, but it's a lot of hard work. And again, not a lot of room for error because what people are seeing, what they're being, what they're perceiving to be fairly flawless would not show up that way. If you were not on top of those things behind the scenes. Talk to us about hoops for hope. That event was created in honor of the late Kay Yao. And how did you raise money for that organization? That is my singular, most proud thing I've ever done in my career. And and I have lots of highlights and lots of highlight reel from my career. Um, But that I'm most proud of, one, because I honored Coach Yao. And Coach Yao was the women's basketball coach at NC State for, I think she's shy 40 years, has she not passed? Um, cause she started in the seventies. So she was the coach there when I was an undergrad and my sweet mates were basketball players. Um, and then I worked with her directly when I returned to NC state many years later to work in the marketing department for athletics. And so doing something 
to honor such a wonderful person. She was a genuinely good person um, and someone who cared more about others than herself. Hall of Fame coach at one point, I think she definitely was in the 700 or 900 win club. We all know people keep coaching, you're going to pass it. But um, the real initial goal of that was to take, take the camera off of her. Her cancer had returned after 18 years of being a remission. And internally, as an athletic department, we had been asked not to speak on it to reporters or anybody who asked. Um, but we also learned internally that the media was about to go live with the story because someone had observed her going in and out of the cancer center at Rex Hospital. So we kind of put all of our heads together and decided, well, how do we get the attention off of her? She's going through this. And she she not only didn't want the attention for the obvious reasons, because you're going through something, you know, kind of personal, but she wanted to do something with her platform. And so that's how Hoops for Hope was born. And the primary way that Hoops for Hope ra um, raised money back then was the actual game. We created a game and dedicated all to pink. So pink sneakers, pink shoestrings, pink jerseys, just pink, pink, pink everywhere. <laughs> and that game's proceeds, the, and all of the proceeds, not a percentage, all of the proceeds of that game would go to the Susan G. Komen Foundation. In addition to the game, or rather built into the game, there was a silent auction that was set up in the uh, the hallways in the in, of, of Reynolds Coliseum, or rather the foyer. It doesn't feel right to call it a foyer because this Reynolds is so big. <laughs> but I think my point is across. Um, we also added a breast cancer awareness um, campaign. So we had Rex bring out actual mammogram trucks where you could be tested on site. So again, a lot of moving parts. And the tickets for that day, not only did all the proceeds go to the cause, but the ticket price was raised. It was doubled. So you knew that you were attending a game where a normal ticket that was five was going to be 10. But it still sold out. It sold, it sold out every year. Um, raised 25000 the first year, 50000 the next year, 75000 so on and so forth. Um, and we also had sponsors, some, again, giving cash, some giving in kind. So that's one of the reasons I'm super proud is because I was a part of their inaugural team. Um, and again, doing it for somebody I thought a lot of um, as a fan, as an alum, and as a colleague. But I'm also proud because it's little known, but I have proof. <laughs> is that it was the forerunner to what is now known as Play for K. And Play for K still exists. Play for K was born from Hoops for Hope. Hoops for Hope was the local event that we did at NC State, but it caught on. And other programs wanted to support Coach K and her cause while she was still living, in fact. And so the WBCA, Women's Basketball Coaches Association, absorbed the initiative. They renamed it, rebranded it, but it is now known as Play for K and it still happens all across the country where programs will dedicate a game and they will wear pink laces or pink jerseys and they will fundraise and give back. Now it became such a successful endeavor. They actually created a cancer fund named the KL Cancer Foundation. So the funds are no longer sent directly to Komen, not to say that Komen doesn't benefit, but there is now a foundation in Coach Yao's name um, since her demise. And so 
all of the fundraising that goes on to this day goes to her cancer foundation to continue research um, in supporting women who are fighting breast cancer. So I love it that it's a legacy project. And whether I ever get to tell people that story or not, this is one of those times. Um, it's just amazing to see something that you started with just a kernel of an idea that that continues like 15, 20 years later. It's just fascinating to me. That's amazing. Amazing. How do young professionals prepare for a career in fundraising? First of all, you need to be able to check your ego at the door because you'll get no's and you may get a lot of no's or you may get no's that can be turned into yeses, no, but, or instead of. So the first thing is you have to check your ego at the door. And the irony in checking your ego at the door is you still need to be charismatic. You still need to be personable. You still need to be someone that people not only can engage in a conversation, um, whether it's about the money you're trying to raise, because usually the conversation starts with something less direct, <laughs> but they have to feel like they have some type of camaraderie with you, that there's trust there. Um, and you have to be articulate. You need to be able to explain to them what the ask is, why you're asking, what will be done with the funds, um, what, how will they be rewarded, or what, what benefits will they gain. So it definitely requires that as well. So I think checking ego at the door, tough skin, being charismatic, being conversational, um, all of those things help you in the realm of fundraising. Um, and it doesn't hurt if you're competitive. You want to close the deal. You want to, to close the sale. Um, I have a colleague, even though we don't work together in the same place anymore, I still consider him a colleague. He worked at UVA when I worked at NC State. Neither of us were in development at that time. We were both in marketing. He is now, um, I think, associate director of annual giving or special gifts or something. I'm sure I'm just completely ruining his title at Princeton. So my point being is he has continued in that vein. And I remember in the early years, it's kind of crazy to say early years because we're entering, what, year three of the pandemic. Um, he was still fundraising. He closed $15 million mm. in fundraising without ever meeting the client live. Amazing. And that was a pivot for him. So that's why I say you have to have those gifts in order to get that done because the money's there. But sometimes you got to talk people into how to spend that money. <laughs> Helps to work for Princeton, too. Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> now, what led you to pursue the academic side of sports administration? Wow. I literally just told this story this morning to my mechanic when I picked up my car. This is the biggest serendipitous stumble in life. Like, for real, for real. Um, <laughs> and... I'm kind of fascinated still. Uh, I actually had taken this kind of a long story. I'm going to try to make it short. I actually got to a place in my career um, where I was extraordinarily frustrated. That glass ceiling is real, um, particularly if you're a woman in sports. I know in the mainstream world, the hierarchy is typically white men, white women, black women, black men. In sports, nah, women are at the bottom of the totem pole. <laughs> It's white men, all men, white women, women of color. 
Um, so I was really, really frustrated because I had, I always enjoyed my career, never not enjoyed it, but I was having trouble getting to that next level when I was ready to grow both in responsibility and in advancement and salary, all that jazz. And I kept losing. I literally would be like one of two final candidates and I would lose out every time to a man, to be honest and nothing against my brothers, um, of any persuasion, (laughs) But that's just frustrating. And oftentimes I was more qualified. I was more qualified in experience. I was more qualified in degrees and credentials. And so I took a job outside of sports. Um, I actually took a job with the Susan G. Coleman Foundation. Um, Through my network, working with them, with the Coach Yao Project, uh, I was recruited to work for their local office in the Raleigh-Durham area. And I took the job because it paid about $20,000 more. And it was an advancement in title. And my rationale was, I'll do this for a year and then I'll, I'll circle back. It'll get me, it'll bump me up in money. It'll bump me up in title or something. So I'll circle back. Within two weeks of taking that job, I did not like it. I, I knew I had made a, a really bad error. <laughs> um, not a bad job, not a bad place. Just, I really was second guessing my motives. Um, and what I realized was I was validly frustrated, but I wasn't, unhappy with what I was doing. I just needed to be patient enough to wait for the right opportunity. And I wasn't patient enough. So I took the job. um, And then I took another job outside of it, another opportunity presented because you get to a place in your career, particularly in sports, because it's a fishbowl. It's it's much smaller than it looks on TV. You'll know people. So at this point, now people coming to me with opportunities. Coleman came to me Um, I had a chance to work with um, Roland Martin. He was still pretty prominent with CNN at that time. That came to me through my my network. So I moved to Chicago and worked with him. So I took a couple of jobs outside of sports and I was ready to return to sports because all of those jobs accomplished one thing that I wanted to do, which was to make more money (laughs) and to have more responsibility. But what I had also learned is it had compromised what I loved. Um, and not everybody does what they love. And I had been doing what I love. So I was like, okay, we still need to make more money. We still want to advance, but we got to do that in sports because that's what, that's what we love. That's what we're, that's our lane. That's what we're good at. That's what we're trained to do. That's what our passion is. Um, so I had trouble getting back to be quite honest. I was looking at jobs. I was getting some interviews, but it's a super competitive business. So it's always hard to get in. Um, It's not as hard to stay in, but it's still competitive at any level. So that was a risk I took. And I was coming up short, again, getting to the final rounds, but losing out. And and I got to the point in both wisdom and age where I would even ask, why didn't I get it? And oftentimes it was something trivial. It was, you're great, you're qualified. Maybe it was a personality thing. Maybe that person had worked there before, like little things. It was never about my credentials anymore. So a friend of mine suggested, well, while you're waiting, why don't you do some adjunct teaching? And I was like, okay, why not? (laughs) Um, I had been working on my doctorate at NC State while working there, but quite honestly, I wasn't working on my doctorate to go into academia. I still play the same sports. I just plan to climb the ladder, maybe do some consulting. And I got a chance to teach full-time at a a small college outside of Boston, teaching sports, communications, and entertainment, marketing. I was like, oh, so I took it. And initially my intention was again, just like I did with Coleman, I'll do it two years so I don't have to pay back relocation. (laughs) 
I'll be able to add this new thing to my resume, which is teaching at the collegiate level, and I shall return to the industry. But one thing led to another. I was there. I got recruited to uh, an opportunity in Jersey City and to be not just a professor, but to be the director of the program as well as the professor. It used to be a really, really small unknown school. But now all of America knows it as St. Peter's University. Everybody knows it today. Everybody knows it. Um, I love St. Peter's. I had a wonderful experience there. So I go to St. Peter's. I was there for three and a half, almost four years. And me being me, I was ready to grow. Nothing wrong with the job, nothing wrong with colleagues, just ready to grow. Um, and part of that was prompted by doing some adjunct work at St. John's. And I realized how much I missed the big university atmosphere. So St. Peter's was great, but adjunct at St. John's kind of like was scratching the itch again. Um, my intentions really were not to leave the New York area. I interviewed for another opportunity at another university, a much bigger, more prominent university. I was one of two finalists, didn't get it <laughs> again. But about two weeks after that, I think I reached out to the school. It was NYU to be exact. And I was like, okay, what's the status of the job? Because I hadn't even gotten a rejection. And they were like, oh, we've decided to go with the other candidate, but you were great. I was like, well, could you tell me what I could do differently next time? They were like, no, you were really great. Like, no, for real, you were great. In fact, you were so great. Next time you see a, a posting, you should have reapplied. Um, they were like, this other person just had more experience with adjuncts. I was at St. Peter's. I had like two adjuncts. <laughs> this other person was coming from a school where they had like 60. Um, so I didn't get it. And then about two weeks after that, uh, I had been doing some capstone work with Georgetown. And the gentleman who had my current position sent out a message to everyone and said, I'm leaving Georgetown. It's been great working with you. I'm going to NYU. And I was like, what? You got my job. <laughs> Um, so I sent him a message, uh, all in good, all in good faith. And I was like, Hey, Daniel, like I was the other finalist. I was like, I don't think I've ever lost a job to someone I actually know, like I knew. And essentially he was like, well, would you be open to relocating to DC? And I was like, for what? He was like, I'd be happy to recommend you for my job at Georgetown. How that is about how I got that? To Georgetown. So my entire academic path has been being pulled to the next opportunity without having, having sought, sought it. I wasn't applying for jobs. I still don't remember saying, I remember getting the call from St. Peter's and being like, I have no idea where the school is. Who are you? Um, like literally. And then the, the one time I applied, it was not to Georgetown. It was to NYU, but not getting NYU Got Georgetown. The opportunity at Georgetown. And so that is how I stumbled into academia and how I've stayed in academia, but I still I still crave industry. So I still might have a fourth act before it's all said and done. Okay. <laughs> what is the greatest challenge you face as an educator? Oh, that's hard because I think I still navigate that. The, the greatest challenge I personally um, struggle with as an educator it's not even the education piece. It's, it's being an administrator. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I probably didn't think of it this way as a student, even though I wasn't a bad student. Um, I'm certain that I wasn't worried about tuition because <laughs> my, my parents were paying it, um, undergrad anyway. Um, I had a full ride to Ohio State. 
Um, so I just didn't see it through that lens, number one. And, and number two, I did get good enough grades. I'm certain I could have gotten great grades, but, you know, I was, I was focused on a balanced college experience, <laughs> you know, academics and college life. Um, Mine was emphasis on college life to yes. mix in a little academics with it. Yeah, there you go. I was about, about balance, but enough to get into grad school and move on. Exactly. <laughs> but having said that, the reason I say I have challenges with um, as an administrator, in fact, just yesterday, no, not yesterday, two days ago, um, whether it's in my capacity as director of the STEM program or some of the committees I serve on, I'm oftentimes put in a position where I have to make a decision about a student's academic career. And for me, I never, I never relish that. Um, it's very hard to sit in that position of judge and jury over someone's um, academic progress because the reality is it's not just academics. Um, we have had situations where students have uh, failed capstone. They've made it successfully through, through the entire uh, master's program and they don't do well in capstone. Um, I had a student in my own capstone class that didn't do well. Um, project was great. Presentation was great, but she had not done some significant work during the semester and it compromised her grade and, and I had to fail her. And, and of course, failing in grad school can be a C. It doesn't have to be an F. Exactly. Um, it, it meant she had to repeat the class. And sometimes they repeat it, they still aren't successful. So it's kind of hard when you're really forced as an administrator to release somebody from a program, a program that they've invested time, energy, maybe a year, maybe two, and no less than $50,000. <laughs> Um, that's hard. That's, that's the singular most difficult thing I deal with. And it's, it's never ending because every semester is a new crop of students and a new crop of challenges. So for me, it's hard to, to have to be that, that bureaucrat. And Um, tell our listeners what capstone is. Capstone is a cumulative project. Um, it usually shows up in master's and or doctoral programs where the goal of the project is to kind of weave together all of the courses and knowledge you've been exposed to over the course of the degree, and then kind of wrap that synergistically into a final project. In our capstone, we have certain, it's gonna end up being a paper ultimately um, and a presentation, but students still have the autonomy over what topic they want to do or how they want to go about the project. So some people will go after it as a traditional research paper. Other people, the capstone paper may result in being uh, a proposal, like an idea or a business or a venture. Um, Others might be making recommendations on a phenomenon that already exists in the sports world. So the goal of capstone is just what it sounds like. It's the cap to the academic um, experience for that level of degree. What has been your greatest reward as an educator? I'm Dr. Brown. (laughs) How about that? Yes. Um, In all seriousness, um, I feel like I'm I'm not the youngest person in the room. I'm definitely not the oldest because academia people will hang around for a minute. But I do recall one day at St. Peter's um, specifically because that was undergrads and, and they tend to be a little more, I hate to say needy, but 
they want to engage with you more. Um, and I just remember sitting in my office one day and, and I had like a, just a revolving door of students coming in to talk about just about anything, not even anything necessarily about class. It could be about the ball game last night. And I remember consciously, I'm Dr. Brown. I'm that person. I'm the person that students feel comfortable with that they can come and maybe share academic issues, maybe share personal issues or financial um, had a lot of that, definitely had students to confide in me on some really, really hard personal stuff. But the biggest reward was honestly just that they felt that level of comfort and trust that they would seek my support um, or my guidance. Um, I like being that person for students. And, and I miss it because I, I don't have so much that um, interaction with graduate students. They're a little more self-directed. But that's that's my favorite part is is. Absolutely. I love teaching them about sports, um, particularly because most people who major in sports, no matter how much you love sports, the business of it is fascinating once you start to learn the, the nooks and crannies. But but being the new Dr. Brown. <laughs> now, when you were at St. Peter's, you launched the eSport and the entertainment business minor. eSports is really hot. Yes. What should aspiring sports administrators know about eSports and how it can be an important part of your program? I think that the most important thing people need to understand is eSports. You know, there is a debate um, both in industry and academia. Is it sport? Um, I think we should just embrace it. It is a type of sport. It's not a traditional sport. It may not involve traditional like go out and practice or shoot hoops or, or throw balls, um, but it's competitive. Um, there is some physicality. I've heard people complain about hand cramps, <laughs> like literally from gaming all day. Um, people will pay. Um, at one point, Madison Square Gardens in New York sold out of an esports event where people are coming to watch other people compete on screen. Um, so the first thing is embrace it as a sport, because if you do, you have now opened an entire new lane of opportunity for students and for the industry itself. So maybe someone wants to work in the sports world and they're 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 more into gaming. They're they're more into computer sports. So they don't have to feel left out because they don't aspire to work in the NFL. Um, and esports has its own needs as an industry. It's now you need you need tech support at all times. You need people that can run venues and be able to network a venue and accommodate a different type of crowd, a different type of audience. So I think that that's the most important thing that people should be aware of is that it is its own thing, but it's also very much a part of the world of sports and it is a massive opportunity. I don't even want to say it's the future because it's already here um, and it's going to continue to grow. Your Georgetown bio mentions that you're growing the number of adjunct professors for the program. Explain yes. to the listeners what an adjunct professor is and what kinds of skills and qualities you look for someone to um, hold those positions. Sure. Um, an adjunct professor is a very fancy way of saying a part-time instructor. <laughs> um and, and it depends. Most people would default to the term adjunct professor, but if you were to find it in a job listing, it may show up as instructor, it may show up as lecturer, it may show up as adjunct lecturer or adjunct professor. Um, and I'm, I'm giving these different iterations because they're all one and the same. It is a part-time instructor. They, at minimum, have to have a master's. 
they may or may not have a doctorate degree. Um, but at minimum, they'll have a master's. And to complement the master's, the master's is for the academic side because academia looks for credentials. But beyond having a master's, which that's not in and of itself enough, is having experience in the industry, having experience in the expertise that you'll be teaching in. Um, for example, we have sports finance, we have digital media, we have sports law. The person that's teaching sports finance probably shouldn't be teaching sports law. And the person teaching sports law definitely shouldn't be teaching sports finance. So we have actual attorneys who work in the sports industry who teach our sports law courses. We have people who work in the finance vein of sports or of the sports world who teach our sports finance. So having a master's is key and having a body of work that speaks to your expertise is key. And what I look for is diversity of person, background, and thought. When I'm hiring, I'm looking for women and minorities because that's always underrepresented in the sports world. We're seeing great strides, but if you were to look statistically, it's still woefully inadequate. Um, but beyond that, I'm also looking for age. Uh, we have some really awesome and wonderful professors that I inherited at Georgetown that have been with the program since inception. Um, some of them are still engaged in the sports industry. Some of them are consultants. Some of them are retired and they add tremendous value. But I also want to see my millennials. I also want to see people who are in a different place on the ladder of their career because they can lend a different type of lens and experience to our students. Um, sometimes you want to hear we have a GM. We, we actually have a GM who teaches in our program, but I also, we actually have a couple of GMs that I think about it. I have a 28 year old GM that teaches in my program, black female, and I have a 60 plus year old white male GM who teaches in my program. But if we think about it, that's two, two identical titles, but the way that they would be experiencing their jobs and at the stages of their career are going to be vastly different. And by the way, they do work together because one is the GM for the NBA G League and the other is the NBA, G, the NBA team's general manager. Um, so I'm looking for that. I'm also looking for diversity of thought. I don't want someone, I should say I don't want someone, but if I have multiple sections of a marketing class, I don't want all of my professors to have identical experience. The course may have identical assignments, but I want different perspectives. I want someone who worked in college athletics. I want someone who worked for Fortune 500 that has a sports marketing department. I want someone who may be worked for a team or worked in a league office. Um, I want someone who maybe worked for a company that is not a sports entity, but they work with sports organizations and businesses. Um, I want somebody from Nike or Under Armour because people forget that's also sports. Um, so I'm looking for those three things at all times, diversity, a person, as in that traditional demographic stuff we're looking for, diversity of background, socioeconomic, psychographic, all of that jazz, and then diversity of thought. Um, I don't, I don't want someone who only thinks the way I do, or they only think like each other. I want all of us to be adding our own little special twist to the, to the, to the total experience. Most schools lost students during the pandemic. But Georgetown's enrollment in your program increased. What did you do differently to grow your program while others were shrinking? Part of me wants to say I did nothing. <laughs> um, and that's, that's partially an honest answer. I, I didn't do much different. 
But what we did do that I, I guess I should own, but I also have to share credit is SES, the School of Continuing Studies, which is our division of Georgetown that houses all of the uh, professional master's degrees as opposed to the academic master's degrees. We pivoted in a little bit of a different way. We already, first of all, SIM, my program, because not all the MPS programs have this. We already had a solid online option. So we always had a way that you could earn our degree without having to come to DC ever, without ever having to take a live class, without ever having to relocate. And we still had the traditional model of coming to class. But during the pandemic, those live classes had to be offered remote. But rather than offer them remote asynchronous, which our online program was fully asynchronous, as in it never meets, you just do the work at, on your own pace, meet your deadlines, but at your own pace. <laughs> and the live class is pivoted to what has now become online synchronous. Online synchronous is also online, but you are meeting live. So if your class is at five o'clock every Tuesday, every Tuesday at five, you need to be logging into Zoom. You're meeting live with your professors. You're meeting live with your classmates. There may be guest speakers. You need to be there. That's a different online experience. So as a school, we had to pivot to that because of the pandemic. But during the evolution of that, we found that there was a high preference for that new online synchronous. A lot of students who had been doing online live in the classroom were doing it because they didn't care for online async. They didn't like the fact that they wouldn't be talking to people or meeting or interacting. So that was the driver. Now, in the process, we learned that, oh, they just want the live experience. So our dean, um, in, collabor in collaboration with all faculty directors, we decided to take something that was built for the pandemic and make it permanent. So now we have three different modalities. If you want to be in the Georgetown SIM program and sit in a classroom, classes are live again. You can pursue it that way. If you want to be in the Georgetown SIM program and you don't want to move to DC and you don't want, or you maybe you live in DC and you don't want to be bothered with the commute, mm -hmm. you now can just log onto your computer. Maybe you're still at work and at five o'clock you log into your computer to jump into your class. And then we still have the asynchronous for those people that are around the world and they don't, they do the time difference or some other commitment, they are like, I need to self pace. So we have all three options and having all three options, it basically grew the program. We always had students all over the world, but even more so now, I literally was playing tag with a student I had in Asia who was in my gap zone section who wanted to meet with me. And it was like, okay, we got to figure out a time. <laughs> it's not midnight for me and it's not midnight for you. She was 13 hours ahead. Um, so we have people in Asia, South America, California, Chicago, like our student body grew because now you can get a great degree from Georgetown anywhere in the world, particularly if you're interested in sports. Um, so I, that's what I said. I kind of didn't do anything, but then as a unit, as a college, we did some different things that, that grew, not just the enrollment in my program, but all of the programs in our school. What has been the biggest sacrifice you had to make in order to be successful in this career? The honest to goodness truth is time um, and personal life. Uh, I wouldn't say I regret it, 
because it's what I loved and it's what I wanted to do. Um, but if I'm honest with myself and others, <laughs> it, 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 it takes a toll on your personal life. Um, when I was still working in college athletics and in professional sports, there were games. Like I remember working for the Orlando Magic. NBA oftentimes has games on Thanksgiving and they have games on Christmas. And when I worked for the Orlando Magic, they were one of the more preeminent teams. Penny Hardaway was still there. So we preeminent teams are typically the ones that are tapped to play on a holiday. So I had to work on Thanksgiving. Now, thankfully for me, my family traveled from North Carolina to come to Florida to spend it with me. But if they had not, I would have just had to stay put and miss holidays. So you miss holidays. Um, you might miss birthdays, reunions, family celebrations. Um, you really compromise your time a lot. And then on a really personal note, this probably why I'm single. <laughs> it's probably a significant reason. You um, and me both. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I'm not so pressed about it anymore because I kind of like my life. <laughs> There's oh, that. yes. You, you also evolve in what you want, or maybe you just grow into what you wanted and you didn't know it because you were programmed to want this other thing. I don't know. That's a different conversation. But what I can say is when I was uh, more actively dating, it wasn't like other people. I can remember hitting it off with guys and going out and they'd be like, I really like you. Can we go out again next week? And I was like, no, but maybe in two or three weeks. <laughs> Next when month, I <laughs> when I don't have a game. Um, and so what I found is they were very, very excited and attracted to a woman who not only works in sports, but likes sports, understands it, will sit there and watch it with you. But not so much when you tell them you got to work or when you take them to the game with you. And I'm like, here are your tickets. Have a good time. See you later. And they're like, you're not sitting down. No, I'll be down there with the mic pack running around like a chicken with its head cut off. But you enjoy it. <laughs> Make sure you get some snacks. Um, I say it in jest, but it's 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 honest. I, I have a few friends um that are married in the industry, but it is a conversation we've had amongst each other. We 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 have had it now. We're a little more seasoned and advanced in the business, but we had it early in the business, um, even when we were going through professional development things. Um, so that's the challenge. Just, I use the word time because everybody's time is different. But I lost time with family at points, and I also lost time probably focused on my personal life. But again, everybody's different. I, I don't have regrets about that because I also have a faith that tells me my life is mine. So I follow the steps that are ordered for me. But but I do like to be honest about that for those who that might be a priority for. Please tell our listeners what the Frederick Firm does. The Frederick Firm. The Frederick Firm is my sister and I. Um, we both have 25 plus years in our respective industry. She's in corporate America. Um, I'm now in higher ed, but have also spent time in the sports world. And by the way, the sports world is a small business world. I like to remind people of that. All these big teams with these big names and these big books, most of them only have about 100 to 150 employees. And according to the Small Business Administration of the United States, 500 employees or less is a small business. So no matter how prominent they are, these are small businesses, typically owned by a family or a small group of investors. <laughs> but we have synthesized our professional experience and our academic knowledge. She's currently working on her doctorate at Vanderbilt. 
um, to offer our services um, to or primarily to business to business, but we we're open to working with individuals to develop customized trainings, workshops around leadership development, um, DEI, uh, executive presence, um, personal branding. So we're basically synthesizing what we know you will need and what is being looked for in elite organizations to advance. We don't focus so much on entry level. We're mostly focused on people who are already in the pipeline, emerging leaders and or executives that are trying to climb higher. Um, not to say we couldn't work with entry level, but our priority is really in advancement and, and empowering individuals and organizations to operate at the highest level. And how can people get in touch with the Frederick firm? The best way to get in touch with us is to visit our website, which is www.thefrederick, and it's Frederick, as in Frederick Douglass, so it's got two E's, um, thefrederickfirm.com, or you could email either of us, um, Laquita at thefrederickfirm.com, Latricia at thefrederickfirm.com. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I encourage people, um, I'm very active on LinkedIn, to reach out to me there. Um, and I'll redirect you. If it's something about Georgetown, I'll redirect you to my Georgetown email. If it's something about consulting, I'll redirect you there. Um, so a number of ways to, to reach me and or the, the two entities I work for. And spell Laquita, please. Laquita is spelled L-A-Q-U-I-T-A. Great. Frederickfirm.com or Laquita.Frederick at Georgetown.edu. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, you've shared a wealth of information. It's a lot. <laughs> I, tried to, I tried to give as much insight as I could. I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people. We really appreciate your time, and I will be in touch. Please do. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You as well. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that the notes you took from our guests will help you as you plan and build your career. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. View from the big chair, examining the cost to be the boss. I'm your host, Marlon Jones, and I thank you again for listening.